Become a disruptor in the emerging fintech space through NYU Stern's new Master of Science in Fintech program. This one-year part-time program is designed with full-time working professionals in mind. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the FinTech House. We are recording live at the Alloy Labs FinTech House at South by Southwest. Amazing sponsors. I'm Derek Tarkowski. I'm the managing partner of Actuate Law and the host of the Tech on Reg podcast on Provoke.fm. Super jazzed to guest host this very special episode of Breaking Banks. And with me this afternoon, we've got two fantastic guests, Mike Bechtel, Chief Futurist at Deloitte Consulting, and David Ryling, chairman and CEO of Sunrise Banks and author of FinTech for Good. And for those of you who don't know, Sunrise Bank uh, not only is a founding member of Alloy, is a B Corp, CDFI, and a member of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. Um, one of those financial institutions truly committed to promoting financial empowerment for all socially responsible banks. Very excited to be sitting here with you two. Uh, you, uh, yes, like absolutely, like yay Sunrise. Um, Mike, I actually don't think I have seen you in a very, very long time since back in your lab days as we were hoarding boxes of chocolate out of Mike Redding's house. So <laughs> I, so consider this uh, an official shout out to all of the Accenture Labs alums. Mike, anything you want to say to that crew? Just uh, Labs legends represent. Hello to uh, a certain Adam Tarkowski, <laughs> who I may or may not know is related to a certain Dara Tarkowski. And uh, yeah, yeah, go Labbers. Go Lavers. Um, all right. So as we have promised the audience today, it has been an absolutely wild time for the financial services industries from so many different angles. Um, increased regulatory scrutiny. I feel like we've gone through 30 news cycles in the past 10 days. Um, we're here at South by Southwest, which has doubled down on its focus on technology, innovation, and the deployment of the technology in our everyday lives and in our businesses. So it seems as though we've reached an inflection point on the proliferation of technology into our daily lives. Mike, I would really love to start with you. Um, it seems that every day we're talking about a new app, a new tech fad. It's chat GPT. It's AI this. It's, it's building algorithms. Technology's good. Technology's bad. And as a woman who generally likes to cut straight to the point and yeah. through all of the nonsense, I'd love to hear from you to tell us where you think the real opportunities in these uh, evolving technologies lie and what's just hype and nonsense. Oh, clear it up for us. Yeah, right? simple. Yeah, like, okay, simple like, I'm timing you. All right, Go. great. Uh, okay, for starters, uh, I don't think tech's good or bad. I think it's a, it's a force multiplier. It's a tool. And that can sound kind of weak, but here's why I, I really believe it. I studied anthropology back in, in undergrad, and we talked about human history, pre-human history, and whether people were talking about you know, sticks and stones fashioned into tools, the fact was even back then, 
those tools, which for those folks were technology, right, could be used to get your dinner, could be used to do harm to your neighbor. And so futurists are low-key secret historians. And when we look at the history of technology, we tend to reject the, everything being like a revolution, a change of, of kind, not just degree. And so there's a, you know, give you that concise answer you're after. Whole history of technology, at least regards business, if interactions are getting simpler, it's probably a path to profitability. If information insights systems are getting smarter, it's probably a path to profitability. If the number crunching in the basement is getting more capable, it's a path to profitability. If it ain't one of those three, right? Simpler interactions, smarter, right? Information, more capable computation, it might be snake oil. Well, you made an interesting comment before because, for example, the tools that we developed to hunt and gather and feed our families, you mentioned also were the same tools that we could use to murder our cave neighbors, right? <laughs> so we also talk about the, the, the ethics and morality uh, of technology and the way we use it and the way we deploy it. That is, that is the defining difference. So David, let's talk about the ethics of a lot of the technology that you know, the world is experiencing right now. And then sort of specifically in the financial services world, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great place to start in, in terms of, again, the anthropology in the history. I can tell you from working into uh, low-income communities my entire career, I can tell you what the credit score difference is between a person who lives in a low-income community and one who does not, who lives in the suburbs, with the exact same profile. It'll be at least 40 to 50 basis points or points different. And so these are just uh, functions of algorithms and so forth in terms of a credit score, um, but we know that they exist. And it's so as we look at the future, in my opinion, like we, as we use all use chat GPT and open AI and so forth, um, it still needs human interaction. It's not perfect. And I do think AI does need parents, maybe specifically grandparents to put some wisdom over the layers of the algorithm because yeah. you just can't put everything into code or all the perspectives. Um, you know, one of the facial recognition issues at the beginning was for uh, minority communities. It didn't recognize at the same kind of accuracy rate as it did Caucasians. So it, it's, that's an issue, right? They yeah. just couldn't, they just didn't do it or think about it in its development. Well, and, and Dave, to your point, you know, one of the things that we've, we've been researching, so Deloitte's been in the business of researching tech trends for the last 15 years. And when you, when you study all things newfangled, you, you start to see patterns in the patterns, right? And one of them this year that we, we, we've really picked up more than ever is that trust trumps tech, right? That, that you know, remember that scene, right, from, from Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum, right? Your scientists were so busy wondering if they could. They didn't ask if they should, right? We're seeing that in boardrooms all over the place. Where yeah. people are saying, man, we've got this magical brain in a box. Ask it anything. It'll blow your mind. And that's a recipe for a bad time. Sure. That's weapons in the hands of children. Yeah. That's mindless harm to your neighbor. And so I think intentionality, to your point, that's going to make all the difference, knowing that we're, we're approaching this stuff like, like adults w w with a mind towards mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I think there's a lot of concern, um, you know, and 
this goes broader than just the financial services industry, but we are gonna we are gonna come back to banks and banking and what and what this all means. But in general, we'll talk about AI, for example, because you I mean, God bless the OpenAI team and you know the press releases and the media surrounding, you know, the deployment of Chat GPT, the way, you know, anyone, my 12-year-old can go, you know, create an account and start <laughs> and start playing with the technology. Right. Um, but really truly, there's aspects of that and i was reading a piece and i can't remember if it was alex johnson or you know one of the other you know brilliant writers that i follow all the time that made the observation that this was just the appetizer and not the entree for artificial intelligence i would love to say that those words are mine but they're they belong to someone much smarter <laughs> than me sure um david what are your thoughts on that I couldn't agree more. I think chat GBT is, is the warm up. It's the, oh, this is really what AI can do. Um, it can write this letter for me and be 80% ish, 90% right. And then it can learn from that. I just think we're at the very tip of what artificial intelligence is going to take us down the road. Um, it, I think it's just going to get better and better. Yeah. Now, it's a little scary. I mean, I hope you can appreciate that as a lawyer, how much that terrifies me to, oh, to, I... to, to, hear, you, to hear you say. Yeah. Um, but as long as it's only 80% and then like I get to okay the last you get 20%, to, yeah, yeah, then I, I feel much better yeah. about it. <laughs> but, yeah, it but, Same fee, shorter time. <laughs> but one of the conversations that I have with my clients pretty regularly lately is it's about the standard that we use to judge AI and specifically generative AI, right? They're, uh, you know, nerd alert. The best description, definition I've ever heard for AI was from Larry Tesler. He was a researcher at Xerox Park back when we thought of Xerox for hardcore R&D right. and not as this thing we used to do. And he said, listen, AI is whatever computers can't do yet. Hmm. I always loved that because it worked in 1956. It worked in 1996. Like AI can't play chess, watch me. Worked in 2011, Jeopardy, not gonna happen, happen. Right? What's different now, right, is it's making its way into the sort of white collar, sort of journalist class, chattering class, you know, like creativity in yeah. silico, what? And back to the standard, I've got some, some clients who say, I've seen those paintings, it's no Picasso. Said, the standard isn't Picasso, the standard's utility. Yeah. I bet it I bet it's good enough to make a greeting card. Right? And I, I've seen that writing, it's it's no uh, Keats. It's probably good enough to do some ad copy. Right. And and so I think we gotta just remember the standard is utility, and that's gonna free up time for our people to do higher order things. Yes. I well, I may or may not have asked ChatGPT to write a sonnet in Shakespearean voice for me at some point <laughs> just to see, just to if see it what write. it could do. Yeah. And it might not be Keats, but it's kind of close to Shakespeare. <laughs> um, all right. So, again, countless discussions and debates about the ethics, uh, you know, the ethics of artificial intelligence. Um, and I want to get a little FI specific and financial services specific, particularly because I think some of the first headlines we really saw years ago, and I think this was back in 2019 when they were talking about, you know, disparate credit outcomes sure. um, with the use of with the use of AI pretty sure that was you know surrounding the whole Apple card debacle you know several years ago how much of that do you see um, 
as being problematic now with today's evolution of how sort of those scoring and those credit decisioning uh, issues are being dealt with, you know, CFPB is dipping its toe into the use of alternative data and trying to attempting to create some sort of standards around there. So, you know, as the chairman and CEO of a bank, mm -hmm. particularly a socially responsible bank, what are your thoughts about how we can make sure that we are using AI ethically, specifically around, you know, making sure that, you know, those consumers are and small businesses are getting the right products and services for them and not experiencing those disparate outcomes? Yeah, it, it's great. It's a super easy question. Yeah, right? super yeah. easy question. So um, <laughs> let me answer it this way, because I'm uh, I'm going to it's really easy to go to the what's wrong and what's negative. But how do you use the AI to constantly monitor your origination and underwriting practices such that you can detect that uh, disparate impact on people in real time? as opposed to waiting months and months for data. How can we make sure that as applications are coming in and being approved, that we have some tolerance of ethical boundary, that we're not uh, favoring one over the other? Um, and as we put in new data sets, then we can test it. Does this create, does this particular new data set create a problem in the algorithm, uh, in the outcomes? Is it leaving somebody out? that normally shouldn't be? Or is it putting somebody in who might shouldn't be? And then you have, let's say, a credit risk. So there's going to be, um, I think, a lovely and robust ethical decision, but can we use the power of AI to do good and, and to get ourselves out of problems that we always looked in the back saying, oh, I already did the lending in the past year and I did leave this particular class of people out. Um, it's done, but can we do that now? Uh, by two o'clock in the afternoon. Also, please CC your lawyer on all of those communications. So <laughs> of that course. may remain privileged. <laughs> Mike, from your perspective, and you know, stepping back because you have such an interesting uh, exposure to a cross section uh, of industry, including financial services, but also well beyond. How important is that sort of? thought process and analysis at the governance level. What type of resources do you need to be putting at your board level, at your risk committee level to ensure that, you know, boots on the ground are doing it right, but buck, buck stops with the board to yeah. make sure that, um, you know, the practices of any organization are not going to land them in hot water. So sort of, uh, you know, concentric circles from from down in the server room all the way up to the boardroom. I, I think something we've seen cross industry is that uh, if we train our models and our algorithms and our AI ML on the data we've always used, we're always gonna get what we always got, which is I think a, a butchered Yogi Berra quote, but you know what I'm saying. One of the frames, you said it so well, Dave, this idea of um, uh, parentage or grandparentage yeah. or this, we've got to take this mindset of like, teach your digital children well, right? Now we're bringing Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yeah, right, exactly. but, but keep, here's, keep them coming. Oh, yeah, right, right. All right, I have an inexhaustible supply. <laughs> of but, but here's the idea. To do that, right, an old colleague of mine, a fellow by the name of Raid Ghani, uh, works at Carnegie Mellon now for their Center for Data Science and Social Good. He said, mm -hmm. step one is the uncomfortable act you testified before Congress on this, the uncomfortable act of making tacit biases explicit, which is uh, fancy talk for 
naming these things we've done wrong yeah. because the machine to be trained needs to see it right. in, in zeros and ones, not whispers and winks, right? Right? Great point. Right? Yeah. Yes, so, exactly. So the first step is admitting you have a problem. That's right. Yeah, like, totally. It's a great classic. Everything That's begins it. with the truth, right? Amen, yeah, okay. amen. And yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and then step two, right? And, and this is still down here a little bit, but you know, two, three, four, five years ago, it was all about using the best machine learning model, like deep adversarial generative networks, yada, yada, yada. Here's the thing. Those things tend to be black boxes. And if you have kids, right? Kids, yep. kids. kids. Um, there's a reason math teachers say, show your work. Because it's not enough to get an answer. How'd you get your answer? Those black box models don't do it. You can't audit, you can't govern, right? Yep. What you need is a glass box. And so what we're seeing a lot of our clients do is they're, they're willing to trade off a little bit of performance on the, the, the robo mind so that they can get a show your work model. With those two, the left hook and the right jab, then, right, you can get the DevOps folks, the, the, the tech folks, the C-suite folks to govern and audit, and then show that work to your board and say, here's what we decided, here's how we trained it, now you can govern. Well, you not only have to show that work to your board, ultimately, you're going to have to show that work to your examiners and your regulators yeah. and the CFPB um, because, you know, we're all still fallible, right? Mis mistakes are going to happen. And it's really how we manage and, and react to those situations. And it's a lot easier to do with a glass box than it is yep. a black box. For sure. So we have a few minutes left. Um, and I know that several people would literally kick me if we did not talk about the absolute uh, circus that has been the financial services and the banking world for fintech in the past week or so. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. And for the bankers and fintechs that are listening, it has certainly been a wild few months in general. Regulatory scrutiny had already been um, at really an all-time high. And then several months ago, we all got SBF'd. And now we are getting SVB'd. So David, <laughs> can you give us just a real quick update as to what SVB really means for those banking fintech right now and the fintechs who are caught in the middle of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is in an unfortunate place to be, and that is certainly understated. Um, and on both sides of this fintech equation, if you're a fintech and your money is stuck in the process, Obviously, there's payroll, there's payments to be made, there's all sorts of things going on there, and your business and your livelihood is at risk at the moment, and you're looking for solutions, and I'm sure there's real fear out there as to what is going to happen. We will see things happen, and I think my opinion of the FDIC and so forth is they will likely move things along quickly, because um, it's in everybody's best interest. Um, and so hopefully that freeze on deposits will thaw awfully quick, and things will start to come back to normal and people get access, hopefully, to all their money. Now, I don't work for the FDIC, um, but I think, in my own opinion, it would be a huge mistake if the depositors were shorted even one penny. Um, that, that confidence in the financial system needs to continue. Otherwise, you may have a systemic issue here in terms of confidence. On the banker side, while I'm sure I'll receive a phone call from my regulator as to um, 
what my liquidity position is and so forth as to the real reason of, of why SVB failed. Um, there's going to be more, I think, long-term scrutiny in terms of how banks oversee their fintech clients or that whole value chain down to the customer. And so if we thought there was a lot of compliance before, I think you're going to have more and more scrutiny into it and the need for more transparency across the whole value chain. And Mike, again, as someone with sort of that cross-industry knowledge, what are your thoughts on sort of the implications that exist uh, for the broader tech community? Well, you know, I was in um, I was in Denmark last week, which you don't hear every day, uh, and um, I had this fascinating discussion with with some business leaders there who were marveling about the United States' ability to to innovate. To, to take big risks and do big things. And, and several of these you know, very successful Danish leaders just sort of called it as they saw it. They said, we, we, don't, we don't take those risks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it got me thinking that, you know, for, having been a VC, I was a VC for eight years, um, entrepreneurs, right, they, 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 they tend to feel like they have nothing to lose. Right? They need to feel like they have nothing to lose. Either they're because they're definitionally broke and they, 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 they don't. <laughs> or, or, they're, or they're sufficiently banked. And so what's a mill? Right? That 85% in the middle, as discussed in you know, the, the, you know, maybe different countries, right? Where it's not the extremes. Um, they're playing not to lose as opposed to yeah. playing to win. And so I, you know, I, I just think that as I've seen it, um, I would never wish broke on anybody, yeah. but without sufficient access to liquidity and capital, I don't think we're going to have people shooting for the stars. So, so I, let's, let's hope that this gets resolved and expeditiously. It's a great point. And it's one that, um, as an entrepreneur, that is frightening, that there's no opportunity to start a business, to try something, to fail. Yeah. And um, I mean, you could... You can criticize America for a lot of different things, but one is it is a land of opportunity. And if you can get access to the capital to try an idea, it's how we move forward. That's it. That's it. Um, we go big or we go home or the FDIC sends us home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the penalty box. You go, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know a more delicate way to put no. that. Yeah, that's it. Um, so I think we're close to the end of our time. Um, you know, given where we're sitting right now, we're in the middle of you know a conference that I'm very happy is 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 back, probably stronger than ever post pandemic. It's been absolutely fantastic getting to meet everyone here at South by. Any sort of final thoughts or words for our listeners? Oh boy, I, I would just say, um, for, well, first gratitude. Thanks for spending some time yeah. with us all, and and for having us, team. Uh, and and then secondly, um, you know. All, all these discontinu discontinuities feel like uh, explosions that we've never seen before, and and I think if we just pull it, pull back, you realize that um, it, you know, it it, it it doesn't always have to feel unprecedented all the time. You see patterns, you see signals, a little bit of measured response, resisting the the hyperbole. I think is good for the heart, the head, the soul, and um, I think we'll get through this. I think we'll get through this. You know, I was in a conversation earlier uh, today and I was talking about, I love mild chaos. 
because mild, <laughs> mild, mild chaos is where the opportunity lies. It's not extreme chaos. That's too much to handle. And it's not little chaos because there's really nothing there. It's that middle ground where it's uncomfortable. And I think we are in a very, un we're in an uncomfortable spot right now with what's happening in the fintech world um, on, on all levels. And, but I think there's great opportunity in there. And it's really, you know, coming to South by and having conversations with, with people, you start to discover what is possible and where the niches and the angles are. And again, it goes back to that entrepreneurial mindset of, mm. oh, we got a business idea here that could maybe work. And so, I don't know, I think the human ingenuity and spirit by getting together, uh, even in troubled times, I think there's good that can come out of it. And so it's fun to be here. Well, the industry was born out of crisis, right? right. It was born out of economic crisis uh, 10 plus years ago. Um, and I have no doubt that the industry will come back better and stronger, especially with incredibly intelligent and dedicated people uh, like yourselves leading the charge, all of the people who are here at FinTech House, you guys are all wearing VIP badges for a reason. So it's been amazing spending time with you all. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, and thank you for letting me guest host this special episode of Breaking Banks, which will re-air on my podcast, Tech on Reg. And good afternoon. Oh. oh, and on Next Gen oh, Banker. Oh, and on Next Gen Banker. I didn't I even know. know it's on Next Gen Banker too. I've known twice. <laughs> Mixtape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, perfect. Well, we thank go. you guys uh, both for, for being here. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Daryl. Well done, buddy. Yeah. You're the bomb. Become a disruptor in the emerging fintech space through NYU Stern's new Master of Science in Fintech program. This is a one-year part-time program divided into one online and six on-site modules that take place in New York and in other rotating global locations. The new program is designed for experienced working professionals who want to strengthen their fintech skills or transition to fintech leadership positions. The final application deadline for the inaugural Master of Science in Fintech program class of 2024 beginning May 2023 is April 15. Don't miss out. GMAT and GRE scores are generally not required. To learn more about the program, submit your resume for a candidacy review at stern.nyu.edu slash msft breakingbanks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Uh, I am your host, Brick King. Um, this afternoon, we thought we would catch up with uh, an old friend who's been on the show a few times, um, but just to get a bit of an update, um, Costa and I have known each other for about 15 years now. Costa Perrick, who is Deputy Director for Financial Services for the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for the Poor. Uh, fin yeah. Deputy Director of Financial Services, Services for the Poor, um, yes. specifically. So welcome yes. back to the show. Hi, Brett. Very, uh, very pleased to be back. Um, so, you know, I, I am doing a fair bit of traveling at the moment. I just spent um, some time in um, Mexico City and, um, you know, a, a big topic of debate there is the unbanked. 
Um, but we are starting to see some movement in, in you know, in uh, LATAM, for example. Um, you know, the new bankers had quite a success at bringing on um, newly banked uh, individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the mobile, again, seems to be moving the needle. But I thought, um, you know, I saw a post that you'd done at the end of, uh, end of the year, um, basically talking about the, um, the traction that has been making um, yeah. in terms of financial inclusion and gender, gender equality. But just, um, you know, you've been at this for 10 years. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, w- what progress uh, have we made in that, in that time? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, where do you see, what has moved the needle? In, in, in your opinion? Uh, so, uh, Brett, the, just to kind of situate you and the audience, so today there is still, uh, according to the latest surveys, about 1.3 billion people that are unbanked, um, meaning they have no access to any kind of banking service. They deal with cash every day. And uh, the reason for existence of the strategy uh, financial services for the poor at the Gates Foundation is to work uh, and assist various stakeholders to connect these people uh, because we know that it's quite beneficial for them in terms of security, productivity, and even uh, lifting out of poverty. It's quite important for them to be uh, part of the economy, essentially, as we say, an economy that includes everyone benefits everyone. So what has happened uh, over the last 10 years that at my interest has been in this, uh, when I joined the Gates Foundation in 2013, the number was 2.7 wow. million. So there was quite a lot of progress made uh, yeah. with, with, you know, uh, with governments, uh, private sector companies, uh, many players at work to do this. And the characteristic is, is that uh, what has helped is digital. So digital uh, payments, uh, digital wallets provided typically by uh, telcos or fintechs. Um, so the, the major strides of progress have come out of the technical digital space um, the traditional banks, with a few exceptions, haven't been very active. It's not their yeah, business model. Yeah. They can't reach very well and serve the people we are talking about, which tend to be poor and remote. Um, but other companies like uh, telcos uh, and uh, fintechs have done that. The pioneer of all of this was in Kenya, the system called M-Pesa, yeah, yeah. Uh, which basically allows you to, even with a very simple phone, not smartphone, uh, send and receive money on your wallet, uh, like you send and receive a text message. So, you know, so one, of our, one of our yeah. most popular shows is a show I did where I actually went to Kenya and I did a man on the street test of M-Pesa and, and so forth. I met with Bob Collinmore before he passed away and, and okay. I had him on the show. And, um, yeah, it, 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 it is, has been a great template for, for yeah. mobile money, you know, yeah. with, yeah. with a, you know, what is it? 98% of the Kenyan adult population now on that, you know, so Absolutely. mobile wallets are a game loss, changer, yeah. right? Yes, a game changer, because first they allow um, 
to have access to a proper financial service that is secure. And as I said, that makes you productive, but it allows other services to be layered on top. Uh, and innovations uh, are, you know, innovations from Africa for Africans are great, you know, uh, companies, just a few examples. And Copa is a company that provides kind of uh, battery, solar batteries on a pay-as-you-go basis. I mean, there is a lot wow. of innovation uh, that that is happening. So that's a great example. The the one thing that, and so we are trying to help uh, other countries and stakeholders to adopt the same trajectory. The path that we uh, we follow and that we uh, promote is uh, to deploy payment and identity platforms at a country right. level or even at a regional level that are intrinsically interoperable. Because one, one of the issues of systems like M-Pesa is that they are silosies. So, so the, you know, both parties of a transaction have to be on M-Pesa. With M-Pesa, it's not a problem because they cover so much population, right. but other markets are much more fragmented. Or if you have to do cross-border, you know. Or you yeah. have to do cross-border. And so, so in other countries, we, we help to deploy payment, instant payment platforms that connect all of these players together. Right, so this is Mojolip, so, right? So Mojolip is one way to do it. Okay. You, countries can choose the way they do it. They can okay. deploy, they can go with a commercial vendor, they can do themselves. We, we have uh, produced with partners this open source software called Mojolip that is um, available on uh, open source uh, for, for uh, to anyone. Uh, if you're interested, go to mojaloop.io to learn more. But Mojaloop allows this to do essentially for countries who are not necessarily skilled and that have the resources. Mojaloop is a great solution so that they don't have to reinvent all these wheels. Other countries who are perhaps more advanced would go on their own or uh, with, with commercial vendors. So there is a way, many ways to do this. And so uh, instant payment platforms for uh, people to be able to transact with any party in the country. And then we also work a lot on digital identity because in order to access a payment system, typically you need to have some form of identity, of course. Many, many people in the populations of unbanked have no identity. Have yeah, no this address, is a consistent no, problem, right? You know, yes, I mean, even even if you look problem. at the unbanked in in the United States, a lot of them don't have a driver's license or a passport. You know, so exactly. even in even in the U.S., identity is a key element of financial exclusion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So a few examples of all this that have happened and that are quite successful. India is a great example on the, both right, fronts, Adaka, both yeah, identity absolutely. and payments with Adahar and UPI systems. Uh, they have onboarded more than a billion people on the, the digital identity system. The UPI system just crossed, I think, six billion transactions per month, payments per month. Uh, excellent uh, success that has been built over the years by the Indian government. Another good example is Pakistan, which we right. 
uh, we helped the central bank there build a system called Understand Rust. English. No, Rust in yeah, uh, yeah. is in Bangladesh. Bcash is Bangladesh. I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Pakistan, this system called Rust went live. That is uh, countrywide, interoperable, connects everyone. Two hundred million people uh, potentially uh, uh, reached with this system. That's now operational. PIX, the PIX system in Brazil went live uh, yeah. recently with a huge take up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just in a few in a few months. Um, so these and we work in Tanzania. Tanzania is building such a system. Why uh, the Western African Economic and Monetary Union of Western Africa is building such a system as we speak? SADC in uh, the SADC region in the southern part of Africa has en enhanced their existing system with something called TCIB that enables instant payments. So um, Philippines, Morocco are, have adopted uh, digital identity systems. So we have a huge movement where the governments realize that these inclusive systems are conducive not only to, as to your point to financial inclusion but to actually economic right, digital inclusion development. generally right digital inclusion generally uh, and, and uh, being capable to deliver welfare that was a huge right. thing yeah. in the pandemic to deliver welfare digitally with no fraud and pilfering and fast yes. so there is this realization now that things like banking payments identity are actually strategic assets of a country in their journey going forward and that's now what i wrote in my blog which i think caught your attention is this notion of digital public infrastructure right so these things are now considered as uh, strategic assets of the countries. They want to manage it. They want to own it. They don't want to depend on others for such strategic assets. And this is where um, there is this this shifting of, you know, usually these platforms were, were built by the private sector. This is now shifting to governments who are driving the development of this and more with the notion of digital public goods, so these open source systems that allow them to control, to have a sovereign ownership of their data, to be able to control their system, to protect it, um, and 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 so on. So that's yeah, kind of I where we stand today, Brett. Yeah, because uh, it's and now I mean it's accelerating. Yeah, it's an interesting epiphany, but it seems obvious now. But um, yes. you know, if you take the Indian market. India struggled for a long time with with the unbanked population, and and they tried many things, including forcing banks to open branches in rural exactly. locations. Exactly. But then the realization was, even if they had a branch there, these unbanked didn't have an identity to be able to open an account. So it wasn't about exactly. the distribution challenges. Of course, once you have a digital ID. Well, I don't need a branch to open a, a bank of account course. for you, of right? Course. So, yeah. Um, yes. Now, mobile wallets outnumber plastic card tra 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 yes. uh, transactions globally now, and have done for for a number of years. Yes. But um, 
are we building two different ecosystems? Because, you know, in the unbanked or the newly banked space, as you've pointed out, dominantly mobile wallets and mobile money yes. accounts now. Um, and then, of course, you've still got the traditional banking system mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. you know, where you have to go into a branch, you sign a piece of paper, or, you know, you could do that online now, but, you know, you yeah. still send a plastic debit card and, and so forth. So it seems like, um, you know, we've got, now, obviously, I use mobile wallets and, and mm -hmm. you know, if you're in economies like China and India, you are. But from a perspective of the West, there's very much like still married to the card systems and the traditional bank-to-bank -bank mm -hmm. payment rails. But the, the, the developing world is all shifting to this really interesting yeah. real-time mobile stuff. So how do you sort of see that will play out? So... Today, these two worlds coexist, um, and I think they will remain coexisting. I think, you know, uh, there is a world of high-value, low-volume transactions for, you know, larger amounts that are more B2B. That is there, and that is necessary, and uh, that will exist, I think. The the fastest moving segment, though, is this um, in terms of numbers and scale and products and services, um, uh, is this world of digital. Yeah. Um, and the like it's, it's not it's not even close anymore. Really, it's not even close. Yeah. Yes, yes. And um, so so the the systems that we are helping build make these two worlds interoperate seamlessly and as you know we we see that uh, you know in in the in the hierarchy and the pyramid that some people graduate as well you know they start with a very simple wallet hopefully they it helps them get out of poverty launch a business then they get more right. Equipped, they have more needs. They, access they to credit. Access to credit. So, so we see this as um, a ladder that is there, that is interconnected, and that can be helpful to to go up. Hopefully, not down on on the ladder. So, so that's how I see it. Uh, I I don't think there is no need for one of these worlds. This is not. Uh, um, zero balance equation there is no right, need for right. one of these worlds to win over the other i think what is happening is the market is expanding yes with a huge number of newcomers with different needs different uh perspectives different uh, you know speed of adoption and the you know like if i take the comparison today today you still have fixed phone lines right Right, but the great majority of people use mobile phones, but it yeah. doesn't mean that there is no more fixed lines. They right. have, they do serve a certain purpose and so on. So that's a little bit the same as I think uh, think uh, here. And if you want to call from your mobile phone uh, a fixed line, there is no problem in that same way. If right. you want to I send money from your wallet to a bank account for your school, you know the tuition. This, of your this child, sounds like okay. this sounds like a story or an illustration you've used quite a few times, Costa. Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. I, there is some drawings I made that that illustrate this from the perspective of the user. You always have to look at this from the perspective, yeah. ultimately, of the person, the woman, you know, who has a small business that uh, can do all of this. 
Now, the, the thing, though, that the next wave of innovation, Brett, I think that is going to be very significant and that may impact the traditional banking is, well, is you, the cross-border. Right. Yeah. You've got the um, – and w when you start going with smart contracts, obviously, you need digital yes. systems. And then, um, you know, you've also got um, elements of like when, when you, you – if you're trying to use artificial intelligence, you know, you, again, you should be plugging it into wallet ecosystems, the metaverse is going to yes. probably, you know, require a wallet ecosystem. And so yes. I, uh, you know, the smart glasses, you know, yes. um, you know, they're going to require, you, you, you're not going to integrate your plastic card and put it in a smart glasses wallet. That doesn't really yeah. make any sense, you yeah. know? So um, yeah. I think it's all pointing that way, but the identity yeah. one is a, is a, a, a really important issue because yes. it's, it's access to a whole range of emerging services from a government perspective, right? Yes. Yes, that's how India envisioned uh, the system called Adahar. It's called foundational identity in the sense that it's not the identity for payments or identity for school. It's a foundational identity yes. that can be used by many for many government services. And that's right. And, and that's the nice thing about it is, is that doesn't require really any device. The only device is your fingerprint, your finger right. with your fingerprint or your eyes with the iris. And that, that gets you a number and that's your identity. From there right. on, you can be known, authenticated, um, and capable of accessing many services. That's tremendously enabling. You can't imagine how, how enabling this is for for people yeah. that uh, that are excluded that suffer from uh, and to your point in you know in the united states there are people who are unbanked who receive a check yeah. for some labor they done the only thing they can do with a check is go to a shark you a know check cashing uh, check yep. cashing shark that will take 10% 15% yeah ridiculous that's terrible yeah. that's terrible the other area of this, of course, is, um, you know, if we look at Alipay, Alipay has been extremely effective in yes. um, managing fraud, as an example. So just point zero 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 six basis points of fraud compared with the card not present average in the States, which is between 11 and 12 basis points. So um, it would appear that the combination of a digital identity in, in the case of Alipay, you know, facial and voice recognition, um, you know, biometrics combined with sort of next generation payment rails is a massive assistance for fraud as well. Is that, is that the observation? I agree. I agree. Um, first of all, identification of people that is pervasive uh, and authentication tremendously helps. Instant payment systems are, also tremendously helpful just to be technical just for a little second and geek out on payments, sure. but instant payment systems are push payments. Right. That means that, means that uh, you know, I initiate the payment to you. And when I do so, the system, so if I give the system your, the phone, your phone number, the system will going to say to me, you're, you're sending money to break King. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So, so you can prevent lots of scam scams like this. So yes, 
these instant payment systems are designed in such a way to prevent a huge amount of fraud that comes from so-called pool payment systems, which are more of a credit card type of uh, yeah, where, uh, where you you request an authority authorization from the bank, you confirm the yes. person has the balance. You provide all your data. You provide all your data. No, it makes it makes a lot of sense. You know, I've been uh, spending more time in Thailand, as you, as you know, Costa, and yeah. um, you know, I use the Prompt Pay system there, which is a QR right. code based system right. as well as contactless. But the Prompt Pay thing is very simple and and it's so convenient because you know you go out and you forget your wallet or something it doesn't matter you're yeah, never yeah. going to forget your phone you know yeah. um and uh, it's just so easy and it just um yeah um, and you know I, I look at that in i looked at in thailand now and say it's just so much further ahead than the u.s where oh, you know yeah. you've still got some pause terminals where you can't even take a contactless um payment Absolutely. right um you know so um and, yeah i'm obviously yeah. a fan and probably you've noticed that if you go from Thailand to Singapore, you can use this system yes. in Singapore. As yeah, if, exactly. So that's tremendous because now the nice thing that the next wave of innovation with all of this, now that you know we have more and more of these instant payment systems in many countries, then connecting them together is tremendously helpful for. Uh, you know, cross-border payments in on a regional basis, or even for incoming remittances from from you know abroad. Because once once you have an instant payment system in a country, when a foreign remittances comes in, yeah. it can be instantly delivered yes. to the right yes. person. So and, and so, generally, the the yeah. costs are, uh, are lower. Um, just I lower, I, yeah. I, we're running out yeah. of time, Costa. But I, I want to yes. before we before we wrap up. Um, you know, for the 1.3 billion that are left, um, you know, yes. and for them getting access to, you know, the, these digital services uh, in the future um, that, you know, obviously are, are, are going to be, you know, a big part of the way we move forward government services and just services in general. How do we move the needle? How do we, how do we you know, close the gap on that 1.3 billion? Two ways. One is to continue and accelerate the movement of deploying these platforms, notably in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where there is a good chunk of this number, uh, more than 400 million of, uh, live there. Uh, so one way is to continue accelerating. And I, I really urge you, and I'll send you the link, uh, if you can put it uh, on the show, sure. our partner, Africa Nenda, uh, has kind of like a inventory of all Africa and all the countries and what remains essentially to be done uh, in Africa. So I highly suggest reading that report. This is the African uh, Nenda. Is that the one? African Nenda. Yes. Yes. I saw it. Yeah. See it on your LinkedIn page. So I'll, I'll make yes. sure we tweet that out. Yes. Uh, the other thing, Brett, is that as we continue, it's going to be, become more and more difficult because these people will be more and more remote and more and more isolated, uh, meaning also digitally isolated right. uh, or educationally isolated. Like, for example, many of them can't read. Right. And so another wave of innovation, I think, is going to be required in terms of UIs and the way they can work. Uh, you know, we see the emergence of voice recognition, uh, AI. I think, you know, rather than requiring 
sometimes clumsy interfaces on mobile phones for them because they can't read. They can they they take time to manipulate the phone. Uh, getting to systems that are more uh, 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 usable by yes. this yeah. will will I think also be required. I work with a lot of uh, you know small entrepreneurs and and innovators on that front too to try to get them to converge to focus on on that last mile of right. financially uh, financially excluded people who have very specific needs uh, i do hope that um, at the rate of progress that we have seen especially i'm so encouraged by what happened in Brazil in just less than a year. Yes, yeah. I think the movement is accelerating, so I I have great hope that we uh, get to really minimal remaining numbers in three, four, five years. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Costa, it's great to have you on the show again. How can people uh, keep in touch with you and and your mission? Uh, uh, LinkedIn, Costa Peric. Um, on Twitter, I'm uh, Copernic. Um, if you can put it on the on the link, sure. And um, yeah, I travel a lot and kind of make known when I go somewhere and where I'm going. So on LinkedIn or Twitter. So uh, please reach out. Fantastic. And I love meeting people. Uh, well, we appreciate the update and uh, you know continued success to you and the team. And um, you know, certainly, you. I think um, you know what has been accomplished the last decade. I mean, we've made more progress on financial inclusion in the last decade than we had the the previous two hundred or three hundred years. It's quite Absolutely. exceptional, really. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, the fact that you've dedicated a large portion of your career to this, um, I applaud you for that, and I I thank, thank you for you. sharing some updates with us. Thank you, Brett. Always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's keep in touch. That's it for Breaking Banks this week. You've been uh, listening. If you like the show, be sure to check it. Um, you know, go to iTunes or Stitcher, Spotify, podcast, or wherever it is you, you listen to the show on and leave us a review, uh, preferably a five-star review. Um, you know, share this uh, episode with your friends if you enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, otherwise just uh, give us a shout out. If there's someone you'd like to see on the show as well, please, uh, please also let us know through social media or via, via our website. Um, but my thanks to the team Provoke Media, Elizabeth Severance and Kevin Hersham on the, uh, on the production side side and then the team um, that manages the web Sylvia and Carlo there Uh, that's it for this week we will uh, have another breaking banks uh, for you next week until then stay well that's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show breaking banks this episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.